Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. And all of you who are online, we welcome you. We're so grateful that you are worshiping with us, and we're so thankful that you are part of the service. And all of our campuses that are tuning in, yay, God for you that you are in person. We love it. Did you know that every Sunday we have now gone over 4,000 people that are back in person, which says we are almost back to pre-COVID Yes, we are, and it is a fantastic thing. So, yay God for that. I am nearsighted, which means I can see things very easily uh, close up, but from a distance, it's all fuzzy. And that's why I wear contacts. I've been wearing contacts for 35 years, and I love them. I love them. I, I, I'm so grateful whoever it is that came up with contacts. I love them a ton more than, than glasses and they're fantastic. So uh, when I go to the uh, optometrist and I get a checkup, which was just a few weeks ago, uh, I sit there in the chair and she said, okay, put your face close to this contraption. It's got all these lenses in it. So, okay, there it is. She says, now, which one looks the best? Is it one or two? One or two? Two. Okay. Three or four? Three or four? Three. And then she goes through all of them. And when she gets to the end of them, she says, I now have your prescription. I know what you need to wear. And she is so right. Because when I put those contacts in my eyes, I can see 2020. It's fantastic. What a great invention. But if I take my contacts out, fuzz everywhere. And that is our culture right now. There's fuzz everywhere. There's so many complicated issues that keep pouring in. It's amazing that where do these things come from that keep pouring in one after another, after another, after another. And many of them are about moral issues and, hey, we need time to process. What, what is the right thing? This is complicated. No, it keeps pouring in, pouring in, and pouring in. And why now? I am not a conspiracy theorist. I can't stand them. There's conspiracy theorist theories everywhere. And by the time you get to the end of them, most of them just evaporate. And then the person who created them, they just go drift into the background until they figure out a new one and they come out with it. And I have so many people who write me and talk to me, do you know about this conspiracy that is there? And let me tell you all about it. And I just say, I am so sorry. I don't have time for this. I just am not into this because I, I got a busy schedule. I'm telling you, I am running every single day. I don't have time for all these things because most of them, maybe even all of them turn out to be not true. And I have some members who say, well, pastor so-and-so down the street, uh, he's all into this. And I said, he's smarter than me. I, he's got more time than I have. I, I can't do that. Now, having said that, I look at everything that keeps pouring in right now during a two-year pandemic. 
And I'm thinking I'm creating a conspiracy theory in my own brain. I look at a two-year pandemic in which everybody is just trying to survive, get to the other end. I got to figure this out. What is right? What is not right? All this. And while we're going through a two-year pandemic, one after another giant moral issue, complicated, keeps going down in front of us. And I begin to wonder, is it because we're so distracted? You just go ahead, I can't mess with that. And then whoever can change the culture without opposition. I don't know since I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but boy, I'm wondering. Who is it ever, whoever in the history of mankind ever in my history, in everything you've ever heard in all your life, who is it that thought it's a good thing to teach a kindergartner about sexuality and transgenderism and homosexuality and two mommies and two daddies? Who in their brain thought this is the appropriate age? To teach those subjects there is an appropriate age, but five or six or seven or eight or nine, whoever thought that? But now if a person says, I don't want you to teach my five-year-old about sexuality, they're called an extremist. No, you're not. You're a parent who's in charge of your child. You're a parent, that's who you are. And whoever's trying to push that down, my five-year-old or six-year-olds, that's the extremist. Okay, I, thank you. Today, there is a term that is being used. I've heard it before, read different things, but I've never read it like now, called a culture warrior. And it's like, we have now taken all these complicated things, we have gotten them all figured out with a new understanding. Now, everyone, you do what we tell you. And I think to myself, well, all these culture warriors that apparently are going around, I would imagine five years ago, you didn't believe what you're now espousing. And five years from now, you may begin to realize what damage that this, this idea caused. And I wouldn't even be surprised that many one year ago never thought these thoughts, but suddenly they now are thinking these thoughts. And now you have to agree with me. You have to do, you have to believe exactly the way I say. And if you don't, you're an extremist. No, I'm not. Isn't it interesting how people are wanting to go as young as they possibly can with all these complicated moral issues. These kids don't understand any of that. But you know why? Because if you want to change the culture, you have to go all the way down to the youngest child. You have to brainwash them from the very beginning on all the things you want to brainwash them in so that they will never think any other thoughts so that now you can control. And that is what every dictatorship ever did. 
And it's what happened in Daniel chapter one. Do you remember? We just came through the book of Daniel. And you remember that these young teenage uh, Jewish young guys were kidnapped in Jerusalem and they were brought to Babylon. And for three years, it said in chapter one, they went through an intense reprogramming. We want you to throw the Bible away. We want you to throw God away, your belief in him. We want you to now believe Babylonian. And Daniel said, no, I will not do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Abednego said, no, I will not do it. I will not throw my God away. I will not throw my Bible away and I will not succumb. Now I'll be respectful and I will be good and helpful, but I will not do what you're saying. You remember that? I think what is happening today is the very same thing that was happening in Daniel chapter one. In Daniel chapter one, there were two worldviews. There was the Babylonian worldview and, and the Bible world, biblical worldview, and they were clashing, give up yours, take ours, and that is what I believe is happening right now. And that is what I wanna to talk to you about. We're beginning a new series entitled Refocus seeing moral issues through God's eyes. In this series, for the first week, two weeks, today and next Sunday, I want to lay the foundation. I, I want us to get a perspective of what actually is taking place in the culture. I want us to understand this because once we get the framework, oh, wait a minute, now I'm, now, oh, now I'm seeing. And I want to do that. And then I want us to address five key moral issues. It'll be a teaching team. Pastor Xavier is going to address sexuality. Pastor Juan Carlos is going to address uh, poverty. Uh, I'm going to address abortion. Uh, Pastor Ender is going to address immigration. And then I'm going to address racism. And some of you right now are thinking, wait a minute, one or two of those are moral issues? Well, a moral issue is how is it that you treat God and treat others? We are to treat other people right and just and fair. So how can we do this with these areas? By the way, in the Bible, there's all kinds of morals, not just five. So we're just addressing five. It's all we got time for. Another day we'll do others, but... We want to go through these five moral issues and then encapsulate everything. And what does this mean about our religious freedom into the future? We are not going to do this series with politics in mind. We're not going to do it. I already know that both political parties have different ideas about different things and we are not going to talk about them. And I know some people say, oh, you should. Other people, if you do, I won't listen. I, we're not going to do it. Some people feel manipulated by that and I would rather you hear the Bible. So we are not going to deal with politics in this series. We're going to take it right from the Bible from beginning to end. It's not because I'm against politics. I, sometimes I get exhausted by politics, but politics are important. We're in a democracy. And in a democracy, we get to vote and the vote matters. And we need to know what's going on. Politics is actually a good thing. 
When, when I was growing up, my family talked a lot of politics. My mom and dad had very strong political views. And sometimes they would tell my two sisters and I, and we would just blow it off because we didn't understand all of it and what did it matter. I mean, it's not baseball or something that's more important. And we'd blow it off, but there was a day in which we didn't blow it off anymore. We began to understand the gravity of all these things as we grew up. And even my, dad, my mom and dad passed away. They're, they're in heaven now and five years ago. And almost up to, not to the day they died, but up to almost to the end of their lives, we still were talking politics. If the, if the conversation was very long, I'm telling you, we'd get to politics and that. And my two sisters and I, if the conversation goes very long, we will get to politics because it's just a part of our lives. Here's what I'm gonna say to you. If you are not registered to vote, you must be. You must get registered. We'll figure out times in which you can get registered to vote. Okay, we want you to be registered. You gotta vote every opportunity you get, you gotta vote. It's your obligation as an American. And you gotta look at both parties, who fits for me and join the party. But I'm not gonna talk about politics in the series. What I am gonna talk about is God's word. So why? What is so important about the Bible that I would have it as my only reference point for these moral issues? Well, it's very much what Jesus was said. He sort of summarized everything just before he was crucified in John chapter 17 and verse 17. There he is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying to his heavenly father and it's just before his crucifixion. And in his prayer, he includes verse 17 that says, sanctify them, meaning those who follow him. He wasn't just talking about his disciples then, he's talking about all of us. He, he had your face in mind. He saw your face. Sanctify them, meaning us, by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said this because he understood that the answers to the problems and the questions and the struggles of our life are right here in this Bible if we would simply give it the time to let it speak to us. That word sanctify is a word that means to be clean, to be right, to be set apart for God. What is fair and right and just? His word leads us in that direction, right, just, and fair. His word will lead us. I believe it with all my heart. So that's where we're going to settle in. But before we do, I gotta lay the foundation. Now, usually when I teach, I take a passage of scripture, I explain what the passage is saying, and I run as fast as I can to application. Because application is what changes lives. Life change in Christ happens when we take the Bible and apply it to our situation and say, now this is gonna alter my life in this way. But today, there's not much application. There's a ton of information. And I'm asking you to give me grace. I'm asking you to take notes. You're gonna really need to do this. And maybe go back and listen to it again because we're gonna cover a lot of turf very, very quickly. Here's the first point. Everyone has a worldview. So which worldview have you adopted? See, you have adopted a worldview whether you know it or not. 
You have a way in which un, you understand the world. It's a worldview, how you view the world. You have a worldview. And if you're like most people, it's a conglomeration of two of the major worldviews. It's a conglomeration of them and you don't even know it. You've actually adopted different aspects from different worldviews and don't even realize it. And then you pass it down to your children, say this is the right thing, and then they adopt a worldview that's a conglomeration. A worldview is our set of beliefs and values. How do we decide what is right and wrong? What are the principles by which we make decisions? It is determined by our worldview. Our worldview is sort of like the, the, the uh, guardrails in our life. And now we stay within these guardrails. I'm feeling good about my decisions. They're between these two, two areas and this is my worldview. My worldview makes sense of the world. My worldview decides how I respond to the world. That's a worldview. Each worldview demands that we make it a God. And I know that sounds like an overstatement, but it actually isn't. And, and I'll mention that in a moment. Trust me on this. Each worldview wants you to make it a God because now it wants you to make your decisions on the basis of what it tells you. Those who study worldviews, and there's a bunch of people in the country that study worldviews, they will say that in America, we have somewhere, I don't know, five or six, who knows? They're, they're, most of them are tiny. There's like the Muslim worldview that's small. There's like a new age worldview that's small. But there are two huge worldviews. Anybody will tell you this. Two predominant worldviews in America. So let's look at the two worldviews. The first worldview is this, a naturalistic worldview. I was going to put the word atheistic beside it, but I thought that would be a negative connotation at the beginning, but it's actually true. A naturalistic worldview themselves says it's atheistic, so I guess write that in. A naturalistic worldview says that life is an accident of evolution, that mankind is an evolutionary accident, that there are no real differences between the value of the different species, including humanity, except what the culture, especially the human culture, imagines or determines it to be. Now, I am not being prejudicial in this definition. You can go Google world, uh, naturalistic worldview. You're going to hear all these principles. They're all gonna be there. I'm not being prejudicial. There is no ultimate purpose for living and no ultimate, uh, ultimate meaning to life. So a person must imagine or determine his or her own meaning. Morality is what the culture or what you yourself decides it is. Have you ever heard the phrase, what is your truth? Have you ever heard that phrase? It comes from this worldview. <laughs> you got your truth, you, I got my truth. It's, a, it's part of this worldview. Now stop for a moment. Think back in your brain to Genesis chapter 3. God's made the creation, made all the people and all the things. And in Genesis chapter three, there is Adam and Eve in the garden and Satan pops up. 
And Satan says, uh, is God, has God told you that you can't eat any of the fruit of all these trees that you see? Oh, no. He says, we can eat all of the fruit that's in front of us except one. It happens to be the one that I keep staring at, this one right here. But we can't eat that fruit. And the devil says, oh, my soul, that is not true. Do you understand why God told you not to eat of this fruit? Because he knew if you eat of this fruit, you'll be as smart as he is. You'll be as powerful as he is. You'll know the difference between right and wrong like he does. He's jealous. He does not want you to eat of this fruit because if you eat of this fruit, you become your own God. You determine what is your truth. You determine what you will do with your life. What is the meaning of your life? No, that's why he doesn't want you to eat of that fruit. You go back and read the passage. And they both ate of that fruit. God said, if you eat this fruit, you'll surely die. There will be consequences in going this direction. And they experienced the consequences. This is a naturalistic worldview. What Satan was saying to Eve in the garden, all those, whoever, years ago, that is what this view is saying. There is no life after death. The only value to living life is what you imagine it to be. And then when you die, you simply cease to exist. Now, I was still working, uh, not to alter what I was going to say, but I just still wanted to understand more. And I came across on Thursday, I came across an essay that was written by a guy who calls himself a naturalist worldview guy. And here is what he said. I, is first I had read it and then I started seeing it everywhere. He said the naturalist worldview is a religion. He says it is the only religion allowed to be taught in school. I'm just quoting him. It's a religion. And here's what he said in his essay. The goal of the naturalist worldview is to destroy Christianity and replace it with naturalism. There is a second worldview. It's called a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says that there is a God and the entire universe clearly points to him. There is evidence for God both in the expanse of the universe all the way down to the makeup of a single cell. And all of it has his fingerprints on it. We are made by him. We have purpose. We have meaning to our life that has come from God himself. He created us in his own image. He has given to us great value. Morality is what God determines that it is and has been given to us in the Bible. God created us to have relationship with him and with others and with all of his creation. There is an existence after death, either with God or away from him based on how we respond to his son, Jesus Christ. This is a biblical worldview. Which of these two worldviews develops the most moral society? Which of these ele elevates the value of a person? Which of these gives genuine meaning and purpose to life? Now, I am not talking about religion versus science. That is a straw man argument. I get sick and tired of it, but it's what we hear constantly. 
Oh, this is between religion and science. No, it's not. This is between a naturalistic worldview and a biblical worldview. And the reason I say that is that I don't know the latest stats, the last I, heard, I read, is that the majority of scientists, how many scientists are there? Well, there's 7 billion people in the world. I got, I'm just going to come up with, a, there's a million scientists. I don't know how many scientists there are. But the majority of scientists believe in God and honor him. Most of those who believe in God and honor him are Christ followers. But there are Muslim scientists who believe in the Muslim God. There are Hindu scientists, Jewish scientists. There are all these people who believe in science, love science, are scientists. But they know the difference between science and God. And science is not their God. This isn't a fight between religion and science. It is a clash between two worldviews. I love science. In school, it was math and science. I just loved math and science. I've always loved science because I view science not as some threat. It's not a threat. I view science as an exploration into the universe God made. Oh, please, pour it on. I want more of it. But here's the in, in amazing thing about science. It changes. It keeps changing. And that's the good thing about science. Today, science will say, well, what is the true thing about is A. And then next week, uh-oh, there's been a new study. No, what is true is B. Five years later, it is, well, actually, it turned out to be C. I'm okay with that. It, it, it's the nature of the beast. Because I am convinced one day science will finally catch up with the Bible. So let it change. Please change. So what? I heard uh, you're supposed to take a baby aspirin uh, to keep from having a heart attack. And then the latest thing I've heard is don't take baby aspirin because it might make you to bleed internally. <laughs> well, thanks a lot now. Uh, you're not, if you eat eggs, do not eat the yolk. Now, it's okay to eat the yolk. That's where most of the nutrition is. <laughs> or not. I don't know. Literally every food that's ever been studied, and I'm, just, I'm exaggerating, I'm admitting up front, it seems like every food that has ever been studied is this is dangerous for you, except ice cream. Everyone agrees. <laughs> Everyone agrees ice cream is good for you, but every other food, somehow this is going to kill you, but you're going to die without food before it can kill you. This is, I'm okay with science changing. Here's what I'm not okay with. I am not okay with the naturalist worldview pretending to be science. And this is what I mean. Kathy and I, a few years ago, went to San Francisco. We, we'd always wanted to go to San Francisco, 
And we went, we haven't been back, but we loved it. It was just the greatest vacation. We stayed there a week and we saved up and we went to San Francisco and had, and I'm gonna tell you, when you go on a vacation with me, you're, you're so tired when you get finished because we're gonna go see literally everything. I love it, I just love it. Kathy now loves it. She has adjusted to me and here we go. And one of the places that we wanted to go was the Science Museum in, in San Francisco. We went to the Science Museum. Kathy and I have always loved museums. We just love them. Any kind of museum, we love it. But we love it differently. I love going to a museum and I want to stop in front of every exhibit. I want to read every placard. And then I want to look at it and think about what that placard said. And Kathy has said to me, we're never getting out of here, are we? We're going to die in this museum. This is not how you're supposed to do it. You go through, you see what is interesting, then you stop and read the placard. And then you just keep on going. So we think a little differently on a few things. And when we were at the Science Museum, we saw uh, the, it said evolution. I said, I want to go in there. So we went in and we were looking around and we came to this placard. Listen to what it says. Life evolved on earth solely on the basis of mutation without direction. When I read it, I said, I turned to her and I said, this is a religious statement. This is not a science statement. But you will get this statement in every science textbook. But it's a religious statement. It is not a science statement. How could you say that? I'll tell you how I can. Because without direction, nobody actually knows that. Nobody was there. In fact, there's more evidence now for direction, not without direction. But you're never going to read this. You're never going to see it. If you go to a geophysicist Stephen Meyer, who, by the way, you're going to think is one of the most brilliant human beings you've ever listened to, in his book, read, read his book called Signature in the Cell, DNA, and the Evidence of Intelligent Design. He is a brilliant man. He's a scientist. Bunch of other scientists believe exactly what he, how he does. You read this book, and you, and you say, I don't want to go read the book. Go to YouTube, everybody wants to go to YouTube. Go to YouTube, type in his name, type in the name of the book. You are going to be stunned about what has been discovered inside a human cell. You're gonna be shocked. And you listen to what he tells you. There's more evidence about direction instead of not direction. And solely, how can they say solely? No one was there, nobody saw how it happened. That is a religious statement and life evolved. Even a creationist, the most, the most uh, uh, conservative creation, creationist believes that there is evolution within the species. This is why there's little horses and big horses and in between horses. There's mutation inside the species. What, what, what creationists believe is that there is not from one species to another. What I'm saying is, is that the naturalist worldview now has the whole floor and they can say whatever they want to say and act like it's science when it's not. That's what I'm saying. We have two worldviews in conflict. A naturalist worldview, a 
biblical worldview and they're clashing. And why is it that there are so many Christians in America who love the Lord, who love God's word, who love Jesus and and follow him, but can't agree on very much? This is the reason. It's worldviews. And ever since, for the last 50 years, all of us have been nurtured and discipled in the naturalist worldview. All the way through school, everything we hear, we read in public, almost all of it is naturalistic worldview. We don't even know it. We just, okay, oh, okay. And that's why. And here's my deal. If we would open our hearts to the Bible, we'll be stunned about what's in it. So I already know, you probably would say you believe in a, you're a church for crying out loud. You probably say you believe in the biblical worldview. I do too. And we believe that God exists and I know Jesus rose from the dead. You see, it's the resurrection, the validity of it that is just tears down every argument against it. I poured myself into that as a young, as a teenager, I poured myself into that and I became fully convinced. I still am. I keep seeing more. I'm still convinced. Jesus literally physically arose from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus, you've heard me say it, this is not just yak. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that everything he said about God, he said about himself, he said about the world, he said about sin, he said about us and salvation is true. He rose from the dead. So a biblical worldview, what is it? What does it say? Here's its claim. First, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. The scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Put a big circle around training in righteousness. Why? Because this means morals. Righteousness is right living. It is how do I treat another person right, fair, and just. It's morals, training in righteousness. I will train you, he is saying, from my word about what is right and what is wrong. That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It is inspired, it means God breathed, it means God was involved in every book of the Bible. And listen to this verse in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that phrase, moved by the Holy Spirit, means? It means to be carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word moved by the Holy Spirit means to be carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it means this. These men that wrote these books, they weren't robots, They weren't in a trance and God moved their hand. Oh, what, what have I done? No, that is not what's going on. And in fact, when you read these books of the Bible, you see their personality all over the place. I mean, it's just amazing what you see from them. But it means that in the midst of them, fully aware, very conscious, writing, God made sure they wrote what he wanted them to write. That's what it means. So think of this illustration. I think it might help. The next time you are in an airplane, you get in the airplane, got to buckle your seatbelts, here we go, and it takes off. 
And when you get to cruising speed, they turn off the, the seatbelt sign. Now you can move around the cabin. Uh, during COVID, they haven't really enjoyed it that much. But before, you could move around the cabin. You still can, I think. But, oh, I know uh, somebody three rows back from me. I haven't seen him in a long time. I, you get up, go back, and, hey, how you doing? How's life? And you just have a chat. Or someone is reading a book. Or someone is playing video games. Or someone is listening to music. Or someone is sound asleep. Or someone is talking to another person. I don't know whether the other person wants to talk to them, but they give that person no choice. All of these things are happening in the plane. Everybody's personality shining in the plane. All the while, the plane is taking everybody to a set destination. They're moving everybody to a set location. Boom, you land and you are in the right spot. And that is what God is describing when he says moved by the Holy Spirit. He is saying you can trust this book because God made sure. Second of all, the Bible is the infallible word of God. The word infallible means that you can trust it to never lead you astray. It will never guide you down the wrong path. It's the thing I love the very most about the Bible. And this is the reason. Do I want to get better at my marriage? Okay, read what God says about marriage and do what he tells you. You get better in your marriage. I want to be a better parent. Read what he says about parenting. You'll become a better parent. I want to know how to better manage my money. Oh, there's just tons. Read what he says about how to manage your money. You will become fantastic at it. I, I want to be better at my job. Any topic you bring up, it's right here. And for some of you, this is a total shock. Are you serious? Oh yeah, you can be a fantastic money manager if you'll just read what the Bible says about money. So, in a Gallup poll, the latest I've seen, 70% of Americans said they read the Bible on occasion every year. But only 16% of Americans say, when I am deciding on moral issues, I consult the Bible. Only 16%. Why are we all screwed up as a country? So where do you get your information? Uh, I, I listen to Oprah, or I, I listen to some commentator, or I listen to the news, or I go to something on the internet, or I just feel, I just feel something. And this is why morally the country is falling apart. And you know what I think? I think most people don't even know that you can answer every one of these issues right here from this Bible. They don't know it. They don't know the Bible. And this is what he says. My people who are ignorant of my word face damage and destruction because of it. And we're living it out.
One last thing, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Inerrancy means that when all the facts are known in scripture and there are original autographs and properly interpreted, will be shown to be wholly true. Fill in the blank, wholly true. I'll talk more about that another day. Proverbs 30, verse five and six, every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you to be a liar. And here's what I'm asking. Would you be open because you are a Christ follower? Would you be open to hearing what the Bible says about moral issues? And over the next few weeks, that's what we want to do. Next week, I'm going to lay one more thing, a foundation, and then we're into it. And on Memorial Weekend, Pastor Xavier is going to teach on sexuality and all the way through. And I'm asking you, I don't know where you get your moral ideas from, but would you open your heart to see what the Bible teaches about moral issues? I'm asking you, would you open your heart to God? Let's pray. Father, as we go through this series, oh, what a series this is gonna be and how important it is right now when so much fuzziness, so much confusion. Sharpen our focus. Help us to refocus and see things now with the clarity of your word. I pray you'd be with our teaching team that we'd be faithful to you in your word. We just want to be humble to you and move in our heart and change us where we need to be changed and reinforce us where we need to be reinforced. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.